Okay, let's get started. Um, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon and good evening. Um, my name is Joe Glauber. I'm a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and interim secretary for the Agricultural Market Information System, or AMOS. And I wanna welcome you to another joint AMOS-IFPRI webinar, this one on global crop prospects for the Northern Hemisphere. I'm very excited about this session. We're coming into a new crop year with a lot of uncertainties. The war in Ukraine continues with rumblings that the Black Sea Grain Initiative could be suspended and tensions over Ukraine grain and oil seeds moving to neighboring countries to the West. Global stocks remain tight and reduced plantings in Ukraine mean that other countries will need to produce additional grains and oil seeds to help rebuild global stocks and moderate price levels. And we have continued drought in, in some key regions around the world, Argentina, um, uh, this year, the Southern Plains of the US and North Africa, and with a likely El Nino event occurring later this year. But today we're gonna focus on crop prospects in the Northern Hemisphere. Experts we're gonna address, will address crop and weather conditions in key wheat, corn, and oilseed producing regions, including the US and Canada, the EU and the Black Sea, North Africa, and China. We have a great panel. Um, with our, our speakers include Brian Barker, who will be speaking on global crop conditions. Brian is a geospatial sci scientist with the Geo Global Agricultural Mon Monitoring, um, or GeoGLAM. Uh, GeoGLAM has been, uh, since uh, the founding of Amos, has been a member of the Amos Secretariat. Uh, he'll be followed by Brad Rippey, who I'm pleased to uh, will be joining us. Uh, Brad is an agricultural meteorologist and U.S. analyst and drought monitor author for uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and has uh, extensive experience uh, uh, as a meteorologist uh, working on agricultural uh, crop conditions. He's going to be talking about weather prospects in the northern hemisphere. And then we're going to turn to uh, three analysts. Uh, top flight analysts, I think, that will talk about uh, production and supply and demand prospects. Um, first, uh, uh, treating the U.S. and Canada will be Angie Setzer. Angie, we've had on the uh, uh, on previous webinars. She's a partner with Consus ROI. Um, and she, again, she'll be talking uh, about the U.S. and Canada. She will be followed by Orly uh, Aurelien Blaury, who's with uh, Grains Analyst with Strategy Grain. He will be talking about the EU and North African uh, production prospects. And then lastly, um, we're, we're pleased that Andre Sizov, who's the Managing Director of Sovacon, will be uh, with us. He'll be talking about Russia and, and, and Black Sea uh, uh, production prospects. After that, we're going to Turn it to the, like we, we always do, turn it to uh, a moderated discussion with the panelists and, and accept uh, Q&As from, from the audience. That's going to be moderated by Seth Meyer, who uh, 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 you know from previous webinars. Seth is the chief economist at USDA and currently is the chair of Amos. And also Erin Collier, who's also been on uh, uh, a few times in the past. She's an economist with markets trade division at, at the Food and Agriculture Organization and is our chief grains analyst for the Amos Market Monitor. And then lastly, we are eager to hear from you. So we will be taking your questions and, and integrating them into the discussion. 
to participate in the Q&A session, submit your questions on ifbre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag, uh, hashtag AskIFPRI on Twitter. Okay, with that, I'm gonna move right to uh, Brian. Uh, Brian, if you can start us off um, with a discussion of the global crop conditions. Huh. Thank you very much, Joe. I'll wait till uh, the PowerPoint gets up. All right. All right, thank you very much. I'm going to talk about current crop conditions with a real focus on the northern hemisphere winter wheat. Next slide, please. All right, looking at global crop conditions right now, as you can see, uh, northern hemisphere, the main issues we're looking at is just wheat in the season. Uh, sowing is just beginning right now for corn and soy. Uh, winter wheat issues, we're focusing on the main areas, looking at Central Asia, in Europe, we're looking at Ukraine, and possibly some other issues developing in Southern Europe. North Africa is a big hotspot right now. And then obviously transitioning to North America, we're looking at a big hotspot in the Southern and Central Great Plains. Uh, also other crops well-known in the Southern Hemisphere currently issues in Argentina and parts of Uruguay and Southern Brazil, and also Africa, Eastern and Western Africa are dealing with some dry conditions as well. Next slide, please. Okay, uh, as I did mention, we are looking at the three main areas of issues right now we're talking about is Ukraine, Central Asia, and the Middle East, uh, in North Africa, and then also the US. However, uh, if you hit next slide, please. As you can see from the global production pie chart here, overall conditions are pretty good right now for winter wheat in, in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Overall favorable conditions, there are a few hotspots to be worried about and a few things to watch as the season uh, comes near completion. And spring wheat begins sowing uh, later this month. Okay, next please. All right, quickly going through the individual regions, we'll start in South and East Asia. As we can see, favorable conditions here. Uh, in China, winter wheat is under generally favorable conditions uh, with a good regrowth, despite some minor areas in the north that receive some frost damage during the winter and some areas with uh, a little bit lacking in rainfall. Now, looking at Pakistan, India, and Nepal, and Bangladesh, we are seeing harvesting beginning. Overall, conditions are favorable for those countries. India did receive some heavy rainfall and hailstorms in March, but those only resulted in some small pockets of damage and uh, lodging in the fields in some states. All right, next slide. All right, Central Asia is where we have some real mixed conditions. As you can see, we have a lot of dry conditions and, and even some hot conditions on some areas. Overall, winter wheat is in, in season here and spring wheat will begin sowing soon in the north, as you can see in Kazakhstan in the north. Uh, the main thing to mention right here is in Afghanistan, most parts of the country really experience below average precipitation and snow depth conditions over the winter. And now we're looking at above average temperatures cause snow to melt rapidly in some regions, resulting in minimal levels of snow water volumes to be released later on this year for irrigation. And so, so the country to watch right here is Afghanistan going forward. Okay, next. All right, in Europe, conditions are generally favorable across uh, most of the continent. Uh, however, we do, as most everyone knows, we have ongoing uh, conflict conditions in Ukraine, particularly in the, in the eastern and southern areas. But one thing to do note is that in the south of Ukraine, uh, particularly in Odessa, we are seeing some dry conditions developing and that may be impacting things. But the nice news for Ukraine is with, uh, within winter wheat, we did see winter wheat regrowth begin two to three weeks earlier than average. Um, this will also help uh, give the, the crop a, a longer growth period and probably impact some good yields if they're not impacted by the dry conditions or the conflict. 
in Russia, we did see conditions improve recently. Uh, they received some sufficient rainfall, uh, particularly in the Southern Caucasus, uh, where there were dry conditions before. In Turkey, we do see conditions which are generally favorable, albeit delayed crop due to uh, some late autumn sowings and some cold spells during winter dormancy and overall low so soil moisture. So that's one country we wanna look forward going ahead, making sure that they're receiving ample rainfall. Another thing to mention is while Europe looks favorable right now, we are seeing some dry conditions developing in particularly in Spain, Southern France, Italy. Uh, so going forward, we may see those conditions deteriorate if uh, rain is not received. Okay, next slide, please. All right, Middle East and North Africa, this is a, a really hot spot right now. We're seeing harvesting beginning in some areas this month uh, with really below average yields expected in parts of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Northern Syria, and Northern Iraq to, to present dry conditions. Um, looking at Morocco particularly, we're looking at a large portion of the country experienced below average rainfall during the early parts of the season, particularly in January. While February brought some relief to the Northwest region, rainfall was significantly below average again in March. The generally low and sporadic distribution of rain combined with uh, above average winter temperatures are expected to result in below average yields, uh, except for maybe some Western areas and central areas. In Algeria, conditions are mostly dry in March and throughout the country, following irregular and below average rainfall early in the season, similar to Morocco. Consequently, winter wheat cereal growth will be much delayed since the start of the season and crop biomass is really considered below average uh, in, in most regions, except for maybe along just parts of the northeastern coast. Now in Tunisia, we're really seeing uh, rainfall deficits since October, uh, basically re really resulting in one of the most uh, lowest rainfall totals in Tunisia since 2001 and 2002 season. And these dry conditions combined with above average temperatures in the last month have severely impacted crop conditions, especially in the central northern regions of the country. And crop level yields are expected to be significantly below the five-year average. In Libya, uh, agroclimatic conditions have been relatively good. However, uh, a lot of the crops have really been impacted by uh, the simmering conflict and ongoing social economic challenges, such as seed inputs, uh, access to fertilizers and other inputs. In Egypt, conditions remain favorable, particularly for the irrigated crops, which are harvesting soon. And then Syria, despite the good rainfall they've really received in the north and south of the country in March, the biomass is once again below average for most of the country and the ongoing conflict is really continuing to cause problems. Now in Iraq, conditions are favorable in the central and the southern areas of the country due to good rainfall. And we're really seeing above average biomass, which is gonna produce some good crops potentially. However, if you look in the north, we're seeing generally poor rainfall performance, uh, particularly in the main cereal producing uh, government of uh, Nineveh and also parts of Dahuk and Erbil, uh, which has read, led to poor conditions. In Iran, we are seeing generally favorable conditions, except for really in the northeast due to some dryness. They did receive some rainfall over the last month and in the central areas, which has really helped crops along the way. All right, next slide, please. In North America, this is uh, an ongoing story, which is uh, really been happening for the last couple of years here. We're seeing drought in uh, particularly uh, since autumn in the main winter, uh, winter wheat producing areas of Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Nebraska, Eastern Colorado. And these conditions have been dry for you know multiple years now. And not only has the surface uh, soil moisture levels been depleted, but we're actually seeing subsurface soil moisture is really being depleted in many areas. Uh, once again, uh, there is uh, a heterogeneity uh, nature over, the, over certain areas. And so you will see some fields being quite good and you'll see a lot of fields where we actually see a good amount of abandonment potentially this year. Uh, so rainfall over the next little while will be important. Uh, in Canada, conditions are generally favorable for winter wheat. This is really a minor crop for Canada where uh, spring wheat is the primary crop. 
That being said, uh, the primary growth for winter wheat is in Ontario, which is seeing good conditions. However, if looking to Saskatchewan, we do have some dry conditions uh, in the fall where it was sown into. So we'll see really how that comes out of spring. And then Mexico conditions are favorable. Going into a winter, spring wheat sowing, it'll be very interesting to watch, especially if you look at the, uh, the Red River Valley region up in uh, Manitoba, the Dakotas, and, and we're gonna see potentially flooding and we'll see how that affects uh, winter wheat, uh, spring wheat sowings. All right, next slide, please. And once again, just giving a summation here, we're looking at overall good conditions uh, for winter wheat in the Northern Hemisphere, except for these uh, spot areas of Ukraine, Central Asia, Middle East, North Africa, and the US. But once again, if you look at the pie chart, these areas which are being impacted are relatively minor in comparison to all the winter wheat we're seeing in the Northern Hemisphere. So we're seeing overall good conditions. All right, next slide. And thank you very much, that ends my intervention. Great, Brian, thanks so much. Um, let me switch uh, here. Uh, so we're gonna move from the earth observation data that's tracking biomass uh, to kind of a meteorological uh, outlook um, and turn to Brad uh, Rippy. Brad, take it over. All right, thank you, Joe. Let me get my camera turned on here and I will be right with you. All right, thank you. Thank you for the introduction earlier, Joe. And I will be looking at some of the same kind of things that Brian was, but again, as he said, from more of a, a drought and meteorological perspective. Next slide, please. I will start out with what's most familiar to me as I'm the US analyst at the Office of the Chief Economist. And here's the current drought scenario for the United States, for the continental United States. And even though we've seen significant improvement over the last five months, you notice that we still have really punishing drought across the central and southern Great Plains, same areas that Brian highlighted as being really in a watch area. With each passing day, we're seeing more and more concerns related to dryness, wind, blowing dust, wildfire concerns across that region. Now, nationally, we just came out of a very long period, 126 consecutive weeks where we saw 40% drought coverage. That ended in February, but at present, we're down to 26% drought coverage in the United States there in that upper box. If you include the abnormally dry areas, that goes up to 47%, but still dramatic change and improvement, especially in the Western United States from what we saw last autumn. Next slide, please. If you look at that in a historical perspective, just going back to January of 2020, you can see this has been a very long lasting drought across the United States, especially in the Western and Central part of the country. We did see that 63% drought coverage as recently as late October of 2022. And again, as I mentioned just a moment ago, that is down to 26%. So a really big improvement, but not across the central and southern Great Plains key hard red winter wheat production areas that will extend to other crops as we move into the spring planting season here in the next few weeks. Next slide, please. This is the US change over the last five months. Again, dramatic improvement in the Western United States, especially California, the Great Basin, the Southwest. Also some improvement in the southeastern plains in the Mid-South, but actually getting worse in many areas from Nebraska southward through West Texas. Next slide, please. As we expand our horizons a little bit and first look at Canada, here's the current drought situation in Canada. You will notice there is a fairly extensive area of moderate to severe drought, especially in the Western prairies and extending across the Rockies. 
that is an area to watch. We're still a few weeks away from spring crops in that region. As you move to the east, as, uh, as Brian mentioned, there is some flood concerns moving from the Red River Valley draining northward into Manitoba. But for the most part, we do have some drought concerns in some of the western production areas in the western prairies of Canada heading into spring. Next slide. And as we head to Mexico, this is kind of an interesting story shaping up here. We actually head into the spring growing season here with a pretty significant drought across much of Mexico and including part of the Southern Plateau Corn Belt, where you see some pretty extensive moderate to severe drought, some pockets of extreme drought D3 in the Northeast and the Southwest. And with El Nino looming, that does portend some additional drought intensification across this part of the world. So I'll have much more on that in a slide or two. Next slide, please. Moving across to Europe, again, uh, kind of focusing on the, the drought side or the meteorological side of things here, that drought really shows up across Northwest Africa. And then we've got concerns from the Iberian Peninsula, kind of extending northeastward, certainly across Northern Italy and, and really beyond that. And you can see some of those other drought concerns as you move across into parts of Central Asia. So that is a bit of a hot spot. Certainly now in the southern areas, we're well into the growing season and then quickly expanding northward through other parts of southern Europe as the growing season gets underway. Next slide, please. This is kind of a mess. I won't spend too much time here, but I'm just looking here at three months, last three months of precipitation, standardized precipitation index. And it does draw your eye a little bit to the central and southern Great Plains. In the north central part or the upper middle part of the map here, you can see that hot spot there, the Iberian Peninsula into Northwest Africa. And you can see some of the issues in Central Asia. And so just a, a little bit of a focus there on some of the drier spots as we head into the Northern Hemisphere growing season. Next slide. All right, here's the, the bulk of what I wanna say today, talking about what suddenly appears to be an impending imminent El Nino. Now, a couple of months ago, it looked like we might eventually transition into El Nino by the end of the year, but all of a sudden, it seems like this El Nino is really ramping up very and unexpectedly quickly. And that could have impacts for the June, July, August period as we move into the heart of the 2023 growing season. This set of more than two dozen dynamical and statistical models shows an extremely high likelihood of El Nino developing in the next few months as you can see by the number of models that are showing points above that red line that is the El Nino threshold for surface ocean temperatures in the equatorial Pacific. Next slide, please. So by June, July, August, we have a 75% likelihood of El Nino formation. Again, that's unusually early for El Nino, which often develops in the fall or heading toward the cold season. In fact, we're at a 60 plus percent chance of El Nino development as early as the May, June, July time period. So again, increasing odds that we could see influence of El Nino on this Northern Hemisphere growing season within weeks to months. Next slide, please. So how does that play out into some of the forecasts? The International Research Institute for Climate in New York City indicating that it is going to be a warm summer pretty globally. When you see El Nino, that tends to take that warmth over the equatorial Pacific and move it throughout the atmosphere in time. 
And that's one of the reasons we're expecting a very warm forecast. You see some of the hot spots for heat expected in 2023, June, July, August, Mexico, perhaps Southern part of the United States, certainly down into Central America, the Caribbean, Northern South America, also look at North Africa, parts of Southern Europe, and then extending into South Asia and even perhaps Southern China, and of course, Southeast Asia. So pretty warm forecast there for the summer, hot, certainly uh, heat, a, a big concern in some areas during the growing season. The next slide will show precipitation prospects and just draw your eyes to a couple of the potential drought spots due to the rapid El Nino development. One would be in the southern part of North America, including parts of Mexico, and then into Central America, Northern South America, and the Caribbean. There's also a drought possibility to likelihood for South Asia. So if you look from the subcontinent and then on into parts of Southeast Asia, that is, uh, again, a consideration for likelihood of drought development. Uh, also kind of a conflicting signal, you see the African Sahel region expecting a wet summer means a lot of thunderstorm complexes moving westward into the Atlantic, but then a hostile environment for tropical formation. So a lot of question marks as to how that tropical moisture will or won't reach the United States and the Caribbean, uh, expected to kind of rip apart anything that tries to form. And so if that moisture reaches the United States in disorganized format, that's actually really good news, but a lot of question marks on how that's gonna play out with an active African subcontinent and then a, a dry Caribbean, kind of an interesting setup there. Next slide. And this is more of a generalized look at what you expect when El Nino forms early and does affect that June, July, August timeframe. And this is pretty close to what you saw in the actual forecast. Again, this is that generalized sort of the historical record of what happens in the summer when El Nino forms early. You can expect drought for India, for the South, Af South Asian subcontinent. Also expect drought in much of Southeast Asia. That'll eventually extend into Australia following three very good years there. And then as you move to the east, you can expect that dry signal for parts of Central America, perhaps extending into Mexico, the Caribbean, Northern South America. But then as we look at South America, the signal should flip from the drought we've been experiencing there. So we may be able to knock down the drought in Argentina and Southern Brazil. Anyway, I believe that was my last slide and thank you very much for the invitation to speak today. Look forward to hearing everybody else. Brad, thanks so much. This is really great. And uh, um, uh, we're likely to have you back uh, just as we follow this uh, uh, development uh, because I think this will be critical, particularly for Southern Hemisphere, some of the summer, Southern Hemisphere crops. Okay, the, uh, so now we're gonna turn uh, away for the sort of crop condition, weather side of things to some of the actual supply and demand things. So first, let me welcome Angie uh, Setzer. Angie, it's all yours. Thank you. I'll wait for the production to start and we'll get rolling. All right, I am Angie Setzer and I'm here with the, your 2023 production outlook for the US and Canada. Let's go ahead to the next slide. All right, so, I'm here with what we have as a starting point. I mean, all of this is very initial data and the figures discussed by me today came from the Government of Canada's Agricultural and Agri-Food Canada's March Outlook update. Uh, we'll get a survey derived uh, piece of information from StatsCan uh, next week. So we'll be watching for that. 
Um, U.S. data came from March 31st um, planning intentions report, um, and I'm going to kind of fill uh, some of that in with the, the 2023 Ag Outlook info that the USDA provided us in February. And so kind of uh, at the start, some points of interest that I um, want to mention, uh, both the U.S. and Canada are kind of um, moving away from what we've seen from a trend standpoint, at least for now, uh, both are expecting principal acreage to be up year over year. So it's been kind of an interesting sort of dynamic that we've seen over the last few years with discussion on whether or not we would ever see principal acreage really kind of meet the previous year's level, you know, due to just certain factors at play, urban sprawl, other things that have been kind of tapping into um, acreage in both the U.S. and Canada. Weather is always, you know, we just went through uh, two different weather outlooks and that's going to have the final say. The breakdown in La Nina is seen as somewhat beneficial or at least has been um, just simply because La Nina has been so rough. Um, it feels like over the last three years when it comes to production, but with this rapid sort of shift into El Nino, um, I feel like we still have no idea um, what to expect or at least feel um, like it, it could be a, a bit of a wild card this year. So. Uh, one of the best things or one of the good things that we've seen so far is lower production costs with prices remaining somewhat elevated. Um, have farmers optimistic for the growing season? They're very eager to get started um, and are going into it with a pretty positive attitude, which is always um, helpful. Uh, yields are expected to improve in the U.S. after last year's drought, you know, hoping uh, to kind of um, work on uh, what is hopefully a better weather pattern because we had such a significant drought in the Western Corn Belt last year. Uh, but in Canada, they're not really anticipating another repeat of last year um, on the production side or on the yield side simply because we had record yields um, across much of the country and that's going to prove difficult to, to repeat most likely. Next slide. So just kind of breaking down our Canadian expectations a, a little bit more pointedly, um, ending stocks are anticipated to grow again um, for all principal field crops this year. Uh, Durham area is expected to fall slightly, but wheat acres outside of Durham are expected to be up um, in Canada as, as well as in the US. Um, production and carryout uh, is expected to increase for both wheat and Durham um, when it comes to uh, Canadian production and ending stock outlooks. Their corn area is expected to decline 2% from last year. A lot of corn in Canada is grown in the eastern portion of the country, Ontario and Quebec, um, and they had such a great fall last year when it came to seeding wheat and the prices were good. Um, so of course that kind of cut into some of that corn area we would typically see. Overall, coarse grain acreage is expected to fall about 6% year over year. Um, barley is gonna be the only thing that really sees a, an acreage increase and that's been driven by some cash market moves we've seen. Um, oil seed acreage in the country is expected to be up by about 2%, um, with big jumps expected in canola and soybean outlooks. Go ahead and next slide. Uh, as everyone else, Brad had mentioned, um, we're really kind of watching soil moisture with some worries over what's taking place in um, Western Canada. The forecast here uh, for the last half of April um, should help to really kind of bolster um, at least some of that soil moisture into the seedbed ahead of planting. Next slide. So here, just to touch on U.S. acres, we've got corn acres up uh, just under three and a half million from last year. They came in about a million acres higher than Ag Outlook projections and a little bit above trader expectations. Soybean acres are similar to last year's final acreage um, and in line with the Ag Outlook expectations at 87 and a half million. Well, wheat acres were up again. We found another million acres um, in the, the area report, the planning intentions report there released at the end of March. Um, a lot that was winter wheat area acreage, um, and a lot of that was found in Kansas. 
Um, so it'll be really interesting to see just simply because of a lot of the expansion or much of the expansion that we've seen in expected wheat area um, has been driven by winter wheat. Um, and some of that was the hard red winter in the Southern Plains. And then over to cotton, cotton area is down 2.7 million from last year. That decline is expected based on the economics. I mean, cotton really just doesn't um, pencil into a, a farmer, a farmer's uh, P&L really well right now. Next one, please. So just to kind of do, I'll say a fun exercise because I, I enjoy looking at all of the different ways that things could change as we go forward. But I like to take, um, and a lot of other traders are doing the same, where we're taking our area planted um, based on the USDA numbers, USDA um, historical percentage of, of harvest, uh, trend line yield as presented in Ag Outlook Forum. I've adjusted beginning stocks to reflect our current outlook um, from the April numbers, and then just kind of fed in um, the numbers that the USDA had released in the Ag Outlook Forum to get an idea as to what we could expect to see um, in the initial new crop um, supply and demand projection that will be released next month. Um, and so as you can see here, we're looking at a pretty significant potential increase in corn ending stocks, probably one of the higher um, ending stock numbers that we've seen, the highest um, since the 1920 um, crop year. And while there's a long way to go before we get there, it's definitely something that um, we'll want to keep in mind. Next slide. Same sort of um, exercise here with our bean outlook, took the USDA planted intention, uh, planning intentions numbers, utilized the Ag Outlook Forum, um, demand numbers, trend line yield, uh, and that put us in a situation that kind of shows that soybeans don't have much room for error still this year. Um, you could see minimum pipeline stocks are in that 200 million bushel range. And so really, if you see any sort of shift in area, shift in acres, um, shift in demand, uh, we could see a pretty significant swing in uh, ending stock expectations. Next slide. And here you have wheat. Um, to be completely honest, I uh, would not get married uh, to this outlook simply because I think we're going to see some pretty substantial changes in overall production outlook, potentially some significant increases in abandonment due to the drought that we're seeing in the Southern Plains, you know, and a lot of other factors at hand that are going to really kind of change this outlook. But Having said that, um, you know, it does show that if all things line up, which we is a big question or is a big if, but if it does, we would see a slight increase in ending stocks year over year. Next slide, please. So just kind of a quick run through of the other U.S. crops. Uh, sorghum acres are expected to be lower this year due to increased wheat plantings. But as I said, uh, wheat abandonment and continued drought um, could really change that moving forward. Weather always has the final say. The small grains acreage outlook is mixed. Um, small, we're supposed to see a small increase in oat area, um, which is uh, interesting in and of itself because it's kind of the area increases are in states you would not necessarily expect, Iowa, Nebraska, Oklahoma. Uh, barley acres are expected to come in slightly below last year. Durham acreage is expected to come in um, higher this year thanks to big gains in North Dakota. While rice, canola, and peanuts are also going to see a planting increase. Well, sugar beets and uh, sunflower, overall sunflowers, will come in lower. Next slide, please. So just kind of a historical run through um, in corn and soybeans. Corn acres have a tendency of increasing. We've seen corn acres increase 15 out of the last 22 years um, from March intentions, especially if we have a fast um, planting pace. There's no real historical correlation on soybean acres um, from March to June. 
Uh, we've honestly, 10 years, we've seen a higher, uh, an increase in acreage in June, three years unchanged, nine years lower. Um, so a lot of that's just heavily influenced by weather and how the rest of the planting season wraps up. Corn acre adjustments tend to be kind of muted. They uh, fall under 2 million acres most of the time. Well, only two years out of the last 16 have we seen them exceed that 2 million acre mark. Whereas in soybeans, um, we've had six years out of the last 16 with an adjustment greater than 2 million. So trend line yields, one last thing I'd like to comment on. Trend line yields have been difficult to accomplish the last several years. And so we kind of have a tendency to believe that this year will be no different. So last slide, please, or next slide. In conclusion, like I said, this is just a starting point. We've got many factors that will influence final production and the market psychology of regarding that's going to shift probably significantly many times in the, in the coming year. March age grade and subsequent June data are both derived from farmer surveys. And so I would just kind of be aware of the fact that some of that lower level of response can result in uh, the potential for a major shift in our outlook from March to final. Um, something to really kind of be aware of. Economic incentives are definitely there for farmers to work to maximize production this year. And so we've seen a really decent April. The last half of the month looks poor. We'll be looking ahead to see how May plays out to really get a feel for, for how that planting season will finish. And then of course the plains remain our biggest point of worry. Northern states are still seeing delayed, well, they have been seeing delayed snow melt and they're experiencing cold temperatures while the drought remains prevalent in the South. So that is it and I thank you. Angie, thanks so much. Um, I want to remind everyone uh, that we are going to have a question and answer period after this. So submit your questions <laughs> on ifree.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. Okay, so great. Uh, we're going to now switch continents. We're going to move move across the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, Aurelien is going to lead us through what's going on in, in Europe and North Africa. Thanks. Okay, so thanks for the for the opportunity to, to present. So I'm working as a crop analyst for strategic grain and together with uh, two other colleagues. So we are responsible for crop production forecast. So in Europe and uh, Black Sea region countries. So today I will give a quick overview about uh, about uh, outlook. Uh, so in uh, Europe and in some North African uh, countries. So next slide, please. So just uh, yeah, to begin a few words about the context of this uh, 2023 harvest. So while uh, last year, so high prices for community uh, secure uh, in some ways, so the margin of farmers. So the situation is a little bit different this year with a real uh, favorable price uh, season effect uh, for this uh, new harvest with uh, on the one hand, so high operating uh, costs, so higher operating costs than last year. And on the other end, so the price of uh, communities that have been uh, decreasing over the last uh, few months. So more than ever, so farmers will have to navigate between uh, maintaining uh, the yield objective, but also ensuring the financial viability of the business uh, with uh, this year's so, uh, vulnerability in case of extreme weather events that will uh, lower the yield, for, for example. Um, so next slide. Okay. So yeah, moving uh, without transition uh, to our uh, production forecast. So uh, on the left, 
so there's a, a map uh, uh, representing so uh, with the figures representing the production or production uh, forecast which is the 2023 harvest and uh, the color code refers to the evolution uh, compared to the five year average so uh, green uh, increasing uh, red uh, decreasing so uh, starting with uh, red seeds so we forgot a slight increase uh, for each seed production year on year so this is uh, fueled uh, by an increase uh, in acreage, also in the Western uh, Europe, notably in France and Germany, with uh, incentive uh, price at the time of uh, sowing and relative uh, good uh, weather condition that uh, did not impede uh, the realization of uh, soil intention. But we had also a quite uh, mild uh, winter with a uh, few reports of uh, crop, uh, crop losses. And uh, so far, uh, okay uh, condition uh, during the first uh, during the yeah, the first day or weeks of flowering. So all together, so uh, we are set uh, for production at twenty one uh, million ton uh, for the total EU one cent EU EU uh, twenty seven and uh, plus the UK uh, this year so twenty one million ton with a possible uh, upward uh, production potential. Uh, given the, the good conditions so far. So next slide, please. So for soft wheat, uh, again, uh, cooperating uh, satisfactory overall uh, with the return of uh, rain in France and uh, southeastern uh, Europe. So in, in March, that uh, is a tension. So after a very uh, dry uh, winter. So the only red flag, uh, the major red flag uh, that we see so in terms of corn conditions so would be uh, uh, Spain and Portugal. Uh, where uh, we already uh, penalized uh, yield uh, with a possible additional production loss uh, uh, that are possible. So we'll uh, come later with a slide uh, on Spain specifically. So altogether, so we've uh, Nacrash uh, that is forecast uh, slightly up compared to last year and better production prospects so in the southeastern uh, part of uh, Europe. So production um, for soft wheat, so it uh, set at uh, one. Uh, 43,8 uh, uh, million tons this year. Uh, next slide, please. So, uh, for barley, so production is uh, set uh, stable uh, compared to last year. Uh, so here, so the situation is a bit uh, different in terms of acreage between uh, winter barley and uh, spring barley. So for winter barley, so we estimate an acreage up uh, 2% uh, compared to last year. But, uh, so far, so satisfactory. Uh, cooperating in most of Europe, so except uh, the uh, uh, Iberian uh, Peninsula. Uh, for spring ballet, so the picture is a bit uh, different with an acreage uh, that is uh, estimated uh, down again uh, this year after uh, uh, 2022 crops was already at a low uh, level in terms of acreage. So in terms of uh, things to follow, so maybe uh, the sowing that were a little bit delayed, so in uh, the northern part of uh, Europe, um, with a uh, rainy and rather uh, cold condition. So there's something uh, to follow uh, how things uh, develop and it put uh, the crop maybe in a greater risk in terms of uh, high uh, temperature during the late uh, stage of uh, crop development. Uh, yeah, next slide, please. So yeah, we uh, come back now a little bit on, on Spain. So here, so early springtime, so did not bring any relief in terms of uh, precipitation with uh, cumulative uh, precipitation between October and beginning of April uh, at a high uh, deficit uh, with uh, crop condition that is uh, now set uh, critical uh, in the northern and eastern part uh, of the countries. 
Um, so here, in terms of uh, production forecast, so we, we are still uh, slight, uh, slightly above the 2022 harvest, which was uh, uh, a bad harvest. But um, given that uh, little to no rain, so the forecast is forecast in the coming days, we are uh, most likely going to reduce uh, again the potential yields. Uh, so we, we, you can count with uh, a reduction in terms of, uh, of, of forecast. Uh, for uh, of soft wheat, uh, total barley, and also dome wheat that is not included here. So the dome wheat, which, uh, which it has a time, so the most impacted crops with a lot of acreage uh, in Andalusia. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so for the south, so the situation is also uh, critical in uh, North Africa. We've again so drought uh, building up, so in uh, Morocco, Algeria, and uh, also in uh, Tunisia. So the situation is maybe uh, at the diest uh, in uh, Tunisia, where there have been reports of uh, fields that have been put uh, already to grazing, so for the wheat, and uh, irrigation bans that has been enforced uh, since uh, early April. So commission uh, is still set. Uh, we already penalized uh, yield potential. But uh, again, uh, as it is the case for uh, Spain, as no rain is uh, forecast in the uh, coming days, uh, production has a potential to go down again. Next slide, please. So altogether, so it is a real uh, slump, slump in production that is expected in North Africa, uh, where the biggest decrease uh, expected uh, in uh, Tunisia. So all, for all the winter uh, cereals uh, that I reported here, so soft wheat, uh, barley, and drum wheat. Uh, so all together, so the production of the three country uh, combined is set um, at it, as it is now, uh, slightly above again the 2022 harvest, so a bad harvest, uh, with yield uh, and acreage uh, loss that have been uh, taken, we've reduced yield and acreage loss that have been taken into account. But again, as for Spain, so production, uh, the production of the potential to go down again. And next slide, please. So now moving uh, quickly to uh, spring crop uh, production forecast. So starting with May, so maize production is set to rebound at a catastrophic uh, 2022 harvest. Uh, so this increase is actually masking uh, an increase that is uh, expected uh, down uh, year on year on the main uh, production on the main in the main production uh, countries, so notably in Hungary and France. Uh, where uh, the possible lack of access to irrigation water has uh, certainly uh, played a role into uh, declining uh, soil attention. Uh, in terms of uh, things to follow, so maybe uh, we have a rather rainy uh, cold start in the campaigns in some part in uh, southeastern uh, Europe. So uh, maybe to, uh, to follow to see things are all developed so far. Uh, at the time, the production is set at uh, 62.7 uh, million tons. Uh, next slide, please. And yeah, finishing with uh, spring seed uh, crop uh, forecast. So yes, this is a uh, record high level of production that I expected for both uh, sunflower and uh, soybean uh, production, with acreage uh, levels that are uh, that remain very high. So likely up. So estimated uh, for soybean uh, slightly up, or sunflower slightly down. A bit uh, with uh, yields that are at this time um, expected uh, much higher compared to the bad 2022 crops, 
So the production uh, could uh, reach uh, 11.2 uh, million tons for sunflowers and uh, 3.2 uh, million tons for soybeans. Uh, next slide, please. So yeah, uh, to finish, as I showed to wrap it says, so uh, in terms of key points of so our condition so far for winter crops, so mostly in Western and Central European countries, so impossible upward uh, in terms of uh, production potential compared to the estimate uh, I gave. Uh, so it would be the opposite uh, for the production uh, estimate I gave for Spain and North Africa, where we could uh, possibly uh, revise onward the production. Uh, in terms of uh, things to follow, maybe uh, this uh, spring sowing that has been delayed in northern part of uh, Europe for, for spring barley, a little bit in Poland also, and uh, for maize in southern uh, Europe uh, to see um, how things develop and uh, if the crop will not be put at risk uh, in the latter stage of uh, development. And then, yeah, the access to irrigation uh, flowers or uh, to with access to irrigation uh, water for uh, summer cropping plants that is uh, uh, put again uh, into question with a really low uh, groundwater reserve, reserve uh, yeah, something to, to follow. Uh, that's it for me, so thanks for your attention. Next slide, please. Great, um, thanks. We're gonna continue our movement east. Uh, so Andre, if you can turn now to uh, Russia and the Black Sea, thanks. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Andre Cizo, head of Solicorn, editor of Cizov Report on the Black Sea. Uh, we help people to understand what's happening in this volatile and not transparent region, help uh, funds, traders, large millers to understand what's happening here, to understand what the crop going to be, uh, will we see any disruptions uh, in this region, which could lead to limit up falling down in the global wheat market or perhaps even corn market. I encourage you to have a look at our service, report, and get your free trial to understand what we are doing. I will speak briefly about the crop in Russia and Ukraine and finish with a few slides dedicated to uh, S&Ds of those countries. So a quick reminder where Russia grows its wheat, it's 70% out of total crop, uh, winter wheat, the rest is spring wheat. So it's south, uh, central, and uh, Volga Valley. And then on top of that, Russia grows a lot of spring wheat, and that's more to the east, Urals, and Siberia, and also uh, Volga Valley. So if you talk about the crop outlook for this year, uh, we saw again a substantial decline in uh, winter crops. Sorry, it's not only winter wheat, it's other crops like grape, for example. No data is available, but we typically account for uh, around 90% of total area. We saw another substantial decrease because of the weather and because of the export tax you might heard about, which was introduced in 2021 and which does hurt a lot uh, farmers' PL in Russia. Uh, particular wheat farmers, and this one's the region why uh, they really declined this year, last year, prior to this crop again. Uh, we talked about the weather a lot, and I do enjoyed uh, earlier presentation dedicated to the weather. Uh, so overall, uh, the weather was, uh, if we talk about Russia, more or less okay. 
there were some problems with uh, ice crust, but not as big as usual. And if you look, if you might remember the previous map with uh, wheat production, here's uh, uh, this nice uh, green area. It overlaps uh, with key wheat winter wheat regions, uh, southern Russia, central Russia, Volga Valley. Volga Valley has been a bit dry, as you can see here, but they had uh, earlier quite uh, good precipitation. If you look at moisture reserves now, they are uh, in, uh, in the Volga, in the center, they are above average. In south, they are close to average or slightly above. Uh, we had some concerns about the south, and that's a key grown uh, wheat region, and particular winter wheat region. But uh, starting from late February, they started to receive good precipitation, and we just uh, revised the crop forecast, as you probably could saw just on Reuters and Bloomberg. I think I'll skip one, skip this. So if you talk about area, uh, we expect to see, because of smaller uh, winter wheat area, uh, we expect to see small uh, pre-harvest array for winter with this season, uh, which will be partly offset, but somewhat uh, bigger spring with array, but perhaps the number for spring with array would be even lower because right now or in recent months, farmers are very unhappy with wheat prices inside Russia in ruble terms. Uh, input prices are going up while the domestic prices in many cases, they are close to break even, or in some cases, below the break even. So farmers could try to switch to some other crops if they can too. So uh, we currently use still uh, marginally below the trend uh, yield estimate. And with such uh, area and that yield, we expect to uh, Russia to harvest uh, around 87 million tons of wheat. Uh, that uh, that is a rare. It's important to end that has been controlled was controlled in Russia prior to the war, so it doesn't include those four Ukrainian regions. But as uh, officially, it also it include does include Crimea. For example, Crimea last year produced 1.2 million tons. So uh, you should deduct around uh, 1 million from this number, roughly, to get an idea of what Russia could produce, uh, excluding Crimea. So it's substantial drop, but at the same time, it's uh, close to average, as you can see here. Uh, Ukraine, a reminder where Ukraine grows its uh, grain. So southern Ukraine and partly uh, central Ukraine, it's uh, wheat. It's mainly a winter wheat contract Russian, 98% it's winter wheat. And corn is uh, northern Ukraine and central Ukraine. So uh, if we talk a bit about Ukraine, we should add a few words about the war. So, uh, for example, Russia currently controls a large part of southern eastern Ukraine, as you can see here, and that's mainly wheat regions. Here, that's mainly corn regions, uh, no Russian troops here. And that's important to be in mind if you look at how this war will develop. So, for example, last year when Russian forces had to pull out of uh, central uh, and uh, northern Ukraine, it did help Ukrainian farmers a lot to harvest late crops like corn and, and sunflower. Uh, Ukraine uh, wheat area is substantially down because of the war, because uh, of that uh, southeastern part of country, which is not being controlled by Ukraine at the moment. Uh, so we expect it to decline by around 1 million hectares. Uh, to 4.1 million hectares. Again, this chart, uh, this map, you saw it already, but uh, 
Uh, Brian mentioned that uh, Ukraine has been a bit dry. Yes, it was, but just in recent two weeks, things have improved substantially in uh, south western part of the country, which received good precipitation, as you can see here, particularly this region, which was uh, too dry, and that's a number one withdrawal in Ukraine, had received very good precipitation, and that substantially improved the outlook uh, for Ukrainian winter wheat crop and total crop, total wheat crop. So now we can see uh, some dryness here in Zaporozhye, which is uh, controlled by Russia by now. But other regions, uh, moisture reserves are close to average or above, with some exceptions in very southwestern uh, part of the country. Uh, we expect uh, Ukraine to produce around uh, 18 million tons of uh, wheat compared to 20 million tons uh, in the previous year. And that's another big decline compared to, uh, to, to the record crop uh, harvested in 2021. But for the, uh, because of the war conditions, still a very decent crop. Uh, we expect uh, Ukraine to, uh, to cut uh, corn area uh, by 0.6 million hectares. Uh, that's a noticeable decline because of the war, because corn is more demanding crop compared to wheat, compared to barley, and needs more inputs, and fertilizer probably is the uh, biggest concern for the next crop, but also because uh, Ukrainian farmers, I think, in many cases, would prefer to plant other late spring crops, not corn, but sunflower. For example, Ukraine has been harvesting old corn crop just until recently, while they harvested all the sunflower in the previous year. And sunflower just uh, a more uh, profitable crop for Ukrainian farmers and uh, gives a bit better returns per acre for Ukrainian farmers. Uh, we expect to see another decline of, uh, of uh, uh, corn production in Ukraine from Sorry, the title is wrong. We just updated that forecast uh, from 28 million tons the previous year to 23 million tons this year. Another big decline, but still a very good crop, uh, taking account that uh, conditions uh, the country uh, is facing right now and farmers are facing now. So uh, with such inputs, just and that probably should be the biggest takeaway uh, uh, out of my short uh, presentation. Uh, we expect to see a substantial decline in Russian production, but because of huge crop, uh, record high crop uh, last year, uh, we expect to see Russia to have huge record high carry out this season, which goes into carrying for the new season. And uh, with average crop, uh, Russian wheat crop, uh, we still expect to see a huge supply of Russian wheat in the new season, just marginally below the previous year, uh, close to the previous year, and that was a record high number, which in turn could imply and likely is likely to imply that Russia will be a huge wheat exporter again in the new season. And personally, I won't be surprised to see even higher number or perhaps we can surpass uh, the previous year record this season record, we say 44.5, USDS has just upped to 45 million tons, that's a reasonable number. And next season, we're likely to be closed because of huge uh, carry-in. If we talk about Ukraine, uh, we expect to see a substantial 
decrease of production, substantial decrease of, uh, of uh, supply. Uh, at the same time, and they by now they uh, already mostly got rid of very high stocks they had in previous seasons because of a record high uh, crop in 2021. Uh, but still, we expect to see exports uh, going out of Ukraine. We expect to see uh, wheat exports at around 10.5 million tons compared to 15.5 million tons uh, in the current season. Uh, and uh, corn exports, uh, we expect them to decline to around 17 million tons uh, compared to 29 million tons uh, this season. And this, among other things, implies that for Ukraine, uh, export uh, terminals uh, uh, will be less important in the new season because of uh, lower export uh, volumes, which country will likely to have to export uh, in the new season. This is all for me. Again, I encourage you to have a look at our report, report, and I'm happy to answer your questions. Thank you. Great, Seth. I'm going to turn it over to you, but I remind everyone that uh, send those question and answer or questions to the um, uh, on either ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, or YouTube, or the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. Seth, take it away. All right, now I'll bring Aaron as well too. Aaron has graciously allowed me to ask the kind of the first open-ended question. And I think this might be a for all five of you, which is, you know, I, I, I'll take note of Joe's introduction where he talks a lot about some of the uncertainties coming in. And we bounce around with you into the U.S. and into Europe and into the into the Black Sea region. We talk about whether I'm not known as an optimist here, so maybe that's just maybe that's just how I'm coming off. But do you all think the has the market priced in some of these uncertainties? I mean, Angie, you talk about some of the returns to uh, more normal yields, and yet, which I think is optimistic for wheat. And yet we still have been pretty tight on some of these stocks. And in Europe, we've got some tightness in terms of Southern Europe. And then on uh, uh, Ukraine, we see another leg down in production and good crops in Russia, but maybe some, some um, uncertainty about the flow of grain out of the region. So I, I guess my question for anybody who wants to talk about, is the market priced in all these uncertainties or am I just too much of a, a, of a worry work on this thing? Uh, I can start a little bit there um, because this has been a common conversation that I've had among um, other merchandiser friends uh, and myself. You know, we're kind of like, where is the risk premium um, in this market structure for what's taking place? And so I, I would say there's a couple different things um, that, that are important to pay attention to. First off, you know, the cash grain market, the cash values, the physical market around the world are not indicating that we're we're tight on on much of anything. You know what I mean? Like the the, the physical market structure um, and and the the cash market prices um, are substantially lower than what we were seeing directly after the invasion and, and in the months leading up to it. Um, and so that's kind of the biggest thing that I'm looking at right now is that the the physical market structure in and in and of itself isn't necessarily indicating that we need to have um, additional risk premium. Um, but, uh, you know, the question comes into play and, and then I'll, I will quit talking, but um, the question comes into play for me is, you know, what kind of additional speculator um, fluff do we get 
um, you know, that additional flow of money that we've been seeing over the last three years has a pretty substantial um, influence on just how high the markets can move. Um, and so if, if hedge funds and other speculators just really aren't caring too much about the grain story, um, do we see this market just kind of stay flat until we know more or discover that there is a worry? Um, and so that's the biggest thing I look at. I keep going back to like 2019 when the speculators weren't actively involved in the ag markets. And 2019 was when we had threatened the crop um, and probably in the, the U.S. crop in, in the most epic of ways, the, the greatest threat to production since 2012. And we topped out at 473 on the D's board that year. And so that's one of those things that I tend to worry about is, are we transitioning away from deep hedge fund participation in this market to one of a more normal um, hedge fund uh, participation, or we just kind of stay a little bit neutral until more is known? Um, and I think that could have an influence on just how deep that, that risk premium gets. All right. Aurelian, Andre, Brad, um, yeah. go ahead, Andre. Yeah, so risk premium, when we talk about risk premium, and Andrew mentioned that, I mean, in my view, it does make a lot of sense that we are currently looking at global S&D, which is uh, not 100% accurate, as we well know, but still, at least it could be comparable to the previous year, or it's tighter. And at the same time, there was still a war going on. Uh, Ukraine has to ship around uh, 10, 11 million tons of corn and wheat in the current season. Russia has to ship around uh, 12 or 14 million tons of wheat in the current season. And, you know, we hear the stories about the Black Sea Green Deal almost every day. Uh, there is still a war, a lot of talks about potential uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive and how it will impact the grain flows out of the region. So, and taking all that into account, I mean, it does, in my view, it doesn't make a lot of sense that, particularly I'm talking about with that, it's so cheap. We also could, at the same time, fundamentally, we can look at other things. And for example, uh, the AUSMD is very heavy, contrary to what USD has been saying us, telling us all the season. And we see that rallies are being sold in Matif, but with that huge risk, in the Black Sea, okay, that's my uh, uh, primary area of focus, of course, but you know, there are more than 20 million tons to be shipped this season, and there is a war in that region, that to summarize things. And the, uh, and wheat is just below $7 per bushel, doesn't make a lot of sense in my view. Yeah, and, 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 and even we look at implied volatility on the US futures market as well, too. There's no, I mean, it, it just, you know, I was having a conversation and everybody kept talking about price volatility and I and I pointed to the options market. It's not there. It's not there. Aurelian, you want to or, or what do I pick up on 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 your view of risks within the European market and more broadly? Yes, uh, I'm basically a corporation specialist, so I won't have much to say about the price uh, to add about what you said, just uh, because I put the emphasis in the presentation on things that were uh, red flagged, so situation in Spain and in North Africa, but uh, actually in the upper part of Europe, so crop perspective is looking uh, quite good. So there is a, compared to our estimate, so there is uh, yeah, potential to go upward uh, in, that, in that direction. That's just uh, something I, I wanted to add. Yeah. Okay, no, that's great. So, so, so while you have concerns in the south, the north may has the at least the opportunity to make up for it in terms of 
good production conditions. Hey, Brad, I want to bring you into this conversation quick because, you know, I, I think a few weeks ago when, when I'm watching snow in North Dakota, you know, uh, and Angie brought up 2019, so I got to bring up 2019 as well, too, and think about prevent plant. What do you think about the risks? You know, we talk about uh, when NAS puts out its prospective planning report, it's always based upon kind of a, a quote, normal prevent plan. What do you think about conditions relative to a normal prevent plant? Because I know it's warmed up. Sure. Yeah. In the north central United States, we have a more localized problem than what we saw in 2019. So we had a much more widespread flooding issue in 2019. Remember, at some point, it consumed the Ohio, the Mississippi, and the Missouri Basin. This spring, we're looking at a much more focused area that's mainly North Dakota, northeastern South Dakota, and parts of Minnesota. Sure, that's a big area for sugar beets, for spring wheat, and for eventually for corn and soybeans in that region. But I don't expect the widespread issues that we saw in 2019. Yes, prevent plant acreage could be quite high in say Eastern North Dakota, Western Minnesota, right along that Red River Valley. Maybe that extends a little bit down the Mississippi, down parts of the Missouri tributaries. But again, not quite at the level of a 2019 unless things get really stormy really quick this spring, not expecting to see that. All right, all right, thanks. I, I feel better. I feel less pessimistic than maybe I started that conversation with. Aaron, I'm gonna kick it over to you and I'm gonna remind folks, hey, send in your questions. And Aaron, I'm gonna jump over and look at the questions coming in and I'll pass it to you. Okay, great, thanks. So I'm gonna kind of try to stay on that theme a little bit in terms of risks and um, the market and taking into consideration, um, especially from a weather condition and or weather and crop conditions perspective. Uh, you know, we had one question from from the audience already about uh, you know longer term deterioration in weather conditions in terms of the El Nino patterns, especially in the U.S. Um, do we do you see a link to climate change with those patterns? And I guess um, I would add to that question, especially you know with La Nina the last three years and now El Nino coming up this summer. With climate change, do those patterns is are those becoming greater considerations in the market? Is the, are the, is the magnitude amplifying as time goes on or um, are those patterns you know, already well-defined and staying within the measures um, within the market? So I open that question. That's also, I guess, would be curious to hear that from Brad, Brian, um, Angie as well on the US perspective. Yeah, I could jump in real quick since I'm still unmuted from the last question. Certainly we've seen a, a change in how the ENSO patterns have played out, especially in the 21st century. We've seen pretty dramatic warming globally over the last half century, and things really seem to be amped up in the last quarter century. We've actually seen more La Ninas than we've ever seen before. When we saw the triple dip La Nina over the last three winters, that's only the third time we've seen that going back to the mid 20th century. We saw it back in the mid 70s. We saw it from 98 to 2001, and then we saw it from 2020 to 2022. That usually leads to increased drought coverage in the United States, and that certainly happened in 2020 to 2022. But now we're, it appears we're heading into um, El Nino very quickly. So a lot of volatility in this ENSO pattern, and maybe a little bit more unpredictable than what we've seen in the past, maybe more surprises in the weather and certainly a hotter climate, not just in the United States, but globally. Mm -hmm. and, and in terms of duration of the patterns, is, that, is there any change there or? We have seen more frequent 
La Ninas since over the last three decades or so. So this is a, you know, this is the first time we've seen El Nino since 2018-19, which was a very, that wet spring of 2019. The difference this time is we're coming off three years of drought. So it's going to take a while to get things to the wet point that we saw in 2019. That's why I don't think we'll see as extensive flooding this year. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, to add to that, is there, are the effects of these weather patterns, are they more long lasting than just a season alone? Or do they, I mean, I think you kind of just mentioned, you know, reference to that. I mean, does it take a while for the soil moisture to, to recover from, from these events? Or is it, you know, only yeah, we have We really have seen these extensive multi-year droughts in the 21st century, not just in the U.S., but globally. And you know, I think that's really played out mostly across the Western and Central United States. We've got the mega drought going in the Western US really 23, 24 years at this point. Yes, it's been interrupted by occasional wet years like what we saw last winter, but overarching drought in the West has been a huge part of the equation that has extended to the Central and Southern Great Plains. It's been a rough ride for producers in the Central and Southern Great Plains. It's been a tough time. I hear from farmers all the time, like when is this going to end? When are we gonna get through this volatility? So it's a real challenge, but at the same time, the Midwest has been largely immune from these major droughts with the exception of 2012. Great, thanks. Aaron, just a few comments about the Black Sea uh, and global warming. Uh, uh, I had the slide with, I want to get back to it, with winter wheat and spring wheat arrive. So, so far, Black Sea as a whole has been a big beneficiary of the global warming if we're talking about recent decades. We saw a way bigger, for example, in Russia, we saw a way bigger wheat crop, as you well know, and that was largely driven by big winter wheat area, which was pushing spring area, and winter wheat area is typically uh, higher yielding varieties, uh, and that was quite beneficial for Russia as a wheat producer. Ukraine at the same time had uh, got an ability to produce more corn because it had uh, enough warmth during the summer uh, to grow the corn. And for, if you talk about recent decades, it has been very beneficial, I would say for the whole region. But if we just, I'm not a climatologist, but if we just extrapolate this trend, I'm not sure that in two decades or three decades, it will be still a beneficial factor for the region because in uh, we could just, the trend could reverse and we could see that more and more uh, droughts in the region and it will be too warm. So mm. it, it was warm and it was better, but I think things could change. Mm -hmm. And not, and Andre also, not just in terms of necessarily yields, but also um, quality of crops as well. I, I imagine also being um, kind of impacted by these, by the different differences of the changes in the temperatures as well. Uh, uh, not directly, indirectly, yes. Typically spring wheat has a low yield, uh, high, uh, higher quality. So on average quality somewhat declined, but at the same time, we do see more uh, see, um, pests uh, go into more Northern regions because of warmer winters. We see more uh, mice in the fields because mice in the fields because of warmer winters. Uh, for example, Sunni bug, you know, bug damage, that's an insect which damages the grain that already has ex expanded substantially. And that does worsen the quality of the new crop, but it's, it's not really a direct impact. Yields are more important and total area. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, great, thanks. And then uh, Aurelian, just to get to your input on this, uh, especially for, I guess, Northern Africa, where they've had, you know, subsequent years of dryness there, um, in terms of the impact going into next season, is there, is that gonna, will the crops be able to recover already next season or is the impact of the dryness the last couple of years already having an impact going into next season as well? Yeah, I'm not an expert of um, Northern African country, but um, yeah, I'm going to be back to, to, to Europe, to France and, and Spain. So the, the discussion is on about uh, yeah, uh, uh, crop rotation, uh, if uh, farmers could uh, adapt and maybe uh, change a little bit uh, the crop rotation decision. It's something that happened after the, the very bad crops that were in 2022 with uh, extreme uh, sort of dryness and high temperature at the end of the, of the cropping season. So uh, this year, so uh, farmers move um, in, in, in France, but also in other parts of Europe, so in southeastern country, also to more winter crops, and they tend to uh, reduce uh, the um, uh, maize acreage, for example. Um, so this kind of uh, redistribution in crop rotation could, could happen, I think. Is this, um, yeah, this impact also this uh, extreme uh, viability in terms of, uh, yeah, the high occurrence, I would say, of extreme uh, river events that is, I think uh, linked also to this uh, global idea of uh, climate change or this kind of events uh, would tend to happen more frequently in, uh, in the coming years uh, where farmers will be able to uh, to adapt and how that is uh, an open question but this is a discussion that is uh, actually in, at the time uh, open in France uh, about access to irrigation water this kind of issue that is uh, I think directly linked to your, uh, to your comment on climate change yes. Great. Okay, thanks. Uh, Seth, I'll kick it back to you. Yeah, so so I guess um, when I was listening to the, the three analysts come in and talk, I, I noticed quite a bit of a contrast from a producer's perspective. And I, and I think about back, back in this past year, when I think about U.S. producers and USDA's reporting of farm income, a really good year for farm income, but not without a lot of anxiety in terms of, hey, where are input prices headed? Where are output prices headed? So ended up in a good place, but with a lot of anxiety. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking all three of our, because I think each of these three regions has a different perspective. Angie, you seem pretty optimistic about input prices moderating, even if output prices are moderating too. In Europe, very different perspective, perhaps, in terms of input prices and perspective. And then, Andre, a monster crop that you've got out there in terms of Russian production, the, your, the uh, Ukrainian farmers struggling, perhaps, with inputs as well, too. So I'm going to make you do double duty and talk about both your perception for inputs and producer attitudes in Ukraine and Russia. So let's, let's start in Ukraine and Russia, and Andre, since I'm making you do double duty. Tell me about kind of that input-output price spread, both in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so I'll start with Russia. It's simpler for me. Uh, so uh, as I mentioned, in many cases, so we have uh, in Russia, there is a very strict export tax, which was introduced in 2021, so prior to the war. And currently, around one-third of farmer revenue is being taken out of his pocket by that tax. So uh, prices now just uh, $110, $120 per ton uh, at the farm gate. And that, that's a very low price. And indeed, for farmers, they're just not making money. And it, the problem is 
is that not making money, not with wheat only, as many all cash crops, all important crops are being heavily taxed. So it's not only wheat, it's also corn, it's also barley, it's also sunflower, it's also rape, it's also soybeans, everything is taxed. Uh, so for at the same time, getting back to inputs question, at the same time, prices are rising fast, around, I think, 20, 30% uh, for the previous season, and I think around 20% for the current season, input prices in uh, ruble terms. Uh, fertilizers, like Russia is a big producer and government tries to relate it, fertilizer price more or less stable, but at the same time, uh, crop protection is up. Uh, machinery is up heavily, and I think that's the fastest rising type of input, because some companies pulled out of Russia, like Deere and Echo, uh, some are still here. You can get some spare parts, but you know you can get them via some complicated logistical schemes, and that is way, way more expensive than it was a year ago and two years ago. So yes, input prices are up, and PNL for Russian farmers doesn't look good at all. So, and if you look at different parts of the country, southern Russia, huge margins two, three years ago, central Russia, huge margins two, three years ago. But if you look at the Volga Valley and places like Ural, Urals to eastern part of Russia, margins were quite thin there two years ago. And now I think many farmers are not making any money. Uh, uh, for, uh, for Ukraine, uh, for Ukraine, I think I, I can't say how much inputs have increased. They did increase, of all. First of all, and I think for Ukraine, uh, uh, my guess, uh, seeds and crop protection won't be such an issue. But fertilizer is likely to be a big problem because you know we need just physically way more fertilizer, and it's hard to deliver during the war. And that's one problem. And uh, more importantly, Russia was uh, the biggest and probably almost the only supplier of fertilizer to Ukraine prior to the war. So, and that's why actually we are uh, quite skeptical. We expect to see a decrease in uh, corn area for, for the current season. At the same time, I think Ukrainian farmers still, because they don't have such um, taxes like Russia has, uh, ha has they still uh, make uh, made uh, quite good money this and previous season despite the war, uh, and that's why we think that we don't see a disastrous crop this year. And let's hope that this war sooner or later will be over, uh, preferably sooner. We could see. I think you know there are a lot of talks that's kind of Ukrainian agriculture is ruined and will take decades to recover. I don't think so. I think that in, in a few years, it would, um, could uh, recover and will recover relatively fast. And so I, I guess I would take your, con your comments contingent on continuation of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, that some end of that would be a totally different story. Is that fair? Uh, uh, you, we don't know how that end will look like. And if we see uh, the end of that initiative, because, for example, uh, you know, in October previous year, Russia said, you know, we're stopping that initiative. And then two, three days ago, they returned to that initiative. So uh, uh, that's one point. So and basically, I think a lot will depend, for example, on things which are not really on the market radar. For example, who will win the Turkish election? So if uh, it's still Erdogan, I think there is a good chance that the initiative stays. And if it's not Erdogan, risks for initiatives are way higher. 
that's that's one story. But at the same time, and I, I specifically mentioned that for Ukraine, because of small uh, smaller supply, smaller export surplus, initiative becoming less important now mm -hmm. in, in the new season. Basically, they can do as we see now, and I think those issues they have currently with Poland, Hungary, and other Eastern European countries, I don't think they'll last for long because they already said, you know, it's not up to you to decide if we are allowing uh, Ukrainian grain or not, it's Brussels who decide, or all countries who decide. Pol Poland can block Ukrainian grain for a long time. I think that ban will, will be over soon, which implies if we still has, Ukraine still has access to the EU, Eastern EU and ports in Poland and more importantly, Romania. Ukraine also has access to the, to the Danube terminals and they can ship up to uh, 2.5 million tons a month without Odessa terminals. So even the grain, I don't, I think that uh, probability is relatively low at this stage, but let's wait for Turkish elections. But even without Odessa terminals, I think Ukraine more or less could ship almost uh, its all export surplus in the new season. Okay, so we've rationalized production to hit what we can actually do overland or through those other ports. And thanks for covering the issue of we were going to, you know, we we're getting questions on in the Q and A too about the Polish bans on imports. So I'm glad you comment on that and gave your perspective. So Aurelian, when you you kind of gave a different perspective on kind of what European producers are seeing in terms of input prices as well too. Would you do you want to expand on that at all? Yeah, so actually this uh, is slide about the price as it reflects that is something that is uh, recurrently discussed. So in at least in France, but I guess in other countries also uh, since yeah, the beginning of the campaign. So it started when farmers started to buy the fertilizer in autumn 2022 at a price that was uh, skyrocketing. Um, and yeah, with a commodity price that started to to decline. So it's not only fertilizer, it was a, the most uh, highest increase, but it's also uh, seeds, uh, fuel, um, and mechanization uh, costs that went somewhat higher. So this is a, a recurrent uh, matters, and now with a declining price in, in commodity, so it's it's starting to yeah to to yeah, to, to be discussed more and more. Um, <clears throat> And actually, so in 2022, so uh, during the last uh, campaign, so farmers uh, actually started already to uh, to use uh, to reduce their fertilizer usage, um, and it seems to be the case also for this uh, new campaign with uh, fertilizer purchase remaining uh, relatively uh, low, even compared to the, to the last year during the even with the, the price of uh, fertilizer declining uh, during the. Uh, this uh, first uh, three months in the year, so that's uh, that's uh, I would say a hot topic. So it's um, it's difficult to say. So what I say about uh, last year also with uh, high commodity prices that ensure relatively good margin for farmers. So it's it's also a, a generic uh, statement that uh, in France, for the, for for example, that would apply mostly to farmers in the north of the country that made a very good uh, crops, and less uh, to farmers in the southern part of the country where. They were a little bit more impacted by the by the drought uh, condition uh, last year. So it's um, it was already I think difficult for, for some some of the farmers in 2022, and it will be even uh, more difficult uh, this year I think to navigate between uh, yeah farmers should maintain what uh, yield objective they should maintain 
and yeah, ensuring the financial uh, yeah, stability of the of the business, as, as I said. So that's um, yeah, I think that's uh, the fair topic and something that uh, yeah could go sideways. I think this year. All right, and, and, and Angie, I, you you know my job. Folks don't tend to call me and tell me how great things are. Uh, and maybe that feeds into my pessimism, but you started out pretty optimistic in terms of what producers are, ex yeah. they're always excited to get out in the field, but you, you, you emphasize this a little bit. Um, you know, are they feeling a little bit better about where input prices are headed despite maybe softening prices? What's your feel on, on, on this? Very different from perhaps what some of the other regions are seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think um, for a lot of producers right now, you're seeing some variability in cost outlooks that we didn't have necessarily last year. Um, last year, we just had a kind of common thread that fertilizer costs were substantially higher than the year prior across the board, whereas this year it's been quite different. Um, I've had a lot of customers that have kind of lagged into their input purchases and are, are very happy um, with what we're looking at um, from a cost standpoint per acre versus a year ago. You know, in some instances, you're looking at um, you know, a hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars lower in production costs if the if certain things kind of lined up um, uh, correctly and and you know taking into consideration some of the other variables that we've seen. Um, in addition to that, you know, with us seeing some of this reduction in in especially fertilizer and and just the ability to get it to feel confident in the supply availability is is also very helpful. Um, there isn't anyone this year that's like what. Is going to happen? Am I going to be able to get my hands on X, Y, or Z? Everyone feels very confident in the supply chain um, ability to kind of meet what they need. So there's some optimism on that side, and then of course we have um, the the additional support through our revenue insurance um, and through the revenue guarantee that that um, crop insurance provides. And so you saw one of the I think the second highest crop insurance revenue guarantee prices established for both corn and soybeans this year. Um, so now farmers are able to, if they participate in, in crop insurance, you know, they're guaranteeing a certain percentage of their expected production at a 591 um, per bushel on the December corn uh, board. So that's that's high, you know, you're looking at the, the upper 13s for soybeans. And so um, the farmers in the U.S., you know, not only are they looking at some slight reduction in um, uh, production costs and the ability to get their hands on the products that they've been been looking for or the things that they need, um, they also have this uh, additional sort of aspect, you know, via the revenue insurance um, and safety net that they're able to kind of have underneath them to a certain extent. So it it does feel like a better year. It, it's one that is definitely filled with anxiety, but the anxiety is is more of does the the shoe drop, you know, as we work our way through the production season, if the crop is good and do we see a repeat of 13 or, um, you know, 2008, 2009 with pricing where the opportunities are very heavily front loaded, you know, that anxiety is not going anywhere because high prices eventually change. But from an overall standpoint, when it comes to, you know, looking at uh, a potential P&L for the year ahead, most folks are sitting in a pretty good position, I would say across the U.S., if the weather yeah, cooperates. Yeah, exactly. And this kind of gets back to that. Last year was a good year, but a lot of anxiety. So it's a better year just in the reduction of that anxiety about can I get what I need. So Aaron and, and Joe, too, I'd invite you all in. I know we see some questions popping up in the Q&A. They've kind of been woven into folks' responses. But Aaron, I'm going to kick it over to you. And Joe, jump in. Okay. Thanks. I have two quick questions. One's for Angie and one is for Andre. 
Um, so I guess first on Angie, following up on kind of what you're just talking about, you briefly kind of referenced we abandonment potential uh, in your PowerPoint. Just curious if you could speak a little bit to that, the, you know, the potential behind that, if there's any economic incentives behind that, or if there, if it's all weather related, if you could just say a couple of things about that. Yeah, um, I would say a, a good portion of it is weather related, though you could say that the price drop that we've seen, I mean, folks were able to plant a good portion of their wheat in the upper eights to, to even low nines. You know, we had rush up a lot of the, the corridor deal the first week in November there. Um, and we saw a significant surge in price that really kind of prompted, I had customers that called, they're like, I haven't planted wheat in 15 years. I think I'm gonna go out and plant it. And, and I said, well, that's a great plan. However, let's sell it right now. Uh, you know, if you're in the process, <laughs> if you were saying that there's several other people that are. Um, and so, you know, the, the, again, going back to revenue guarantees via crop insurance, if a farmer participates in that in the Eastern Corn Belt, um, and has a reasonable APH, you know, they're probably going to keep their, um, their wheat, especially if they've already kind of, uh, decided to, to do so via, um, you know, a nitrogen application or something of that nature here that tends to take place in the, the last part of, or throughout March across much of, of the U.S. here. So, um, it's the biggest thing, the weather, the Southern Plains, the wheat that hasn't been irrigated is basically non-existent. Like it never really had a chance. And so you do have a good amount of those acres that are reported. The, the farmer did plant them. They did try. Um, there was a, a shot of moisture, you know, last year, late in the fall and some talk that we were going to see La Nina break down sooner than later that provided some optimism regarding putting wheat in the ground. Um, and, and that's not there. Um, and so anything that really hasn't seen significant irrigation over the, the course of the winter even, I mean, there were reports of, of folks running uh, pivots on circles in, in February, um, you know, and so if you don't have uh, issues, you know, if you haven't seen, um, you know, if you don't have weed under irrigation, you're probably going to run into a situation where it's going to be taken into consideration to just kind of put something else in um, or look in a different direction, I would say, across a lot of the Southern Plains. Mm-hmm. Okay. Super interesting. Thanks. Uh, and then since we're running out of time, very quickly going to switch to a quick question for Andre. Um, Andre, you already kind of touched on some of these topics, but um, just wanted to ask a little bit about some of the dynamics in Russia in terms of exports and prices. Um, you know, Russia's had these big supplies. It's had a really strong export pace late in the season after a slow pace early in the season, you know, a little bit atypical. Um, and those trends have been a big driving factor behind bringing global wheat prices down. Uh, but there's been a lot of recent developments, some of which you already mentioned, the potential to revise the export tax, which would result in a lower export taxes from Russia, um, the kind of unofficial price floor that we've um, heard about coming from for Russia's exports, uh, and the recent, as you mentioned, the pullout of a lot of multinational companies from Russia. So just curious if you can speak, I mean, in terms of exports um, and the impact on global wheat prices that you think those developments, developments might have in the very near future and also going in, into next season? Thank you. Uh, that's a great question. And this is very uncommon season, as you mentioned well. We had a uh, short, uh, slow start of the campaign because of strong ruble and because of those taxes, which we mentioned. Then uh, pays big began to speed up, but because of the slow start, we actually, Russia will export almost 50% of its export program in the second half of the season, which is very uncommon. Typically it's 
first half of the season, 60-70%, but this year it's 50% uh, or, or just slightly above 50%. Yeah, uh, so for now we expect to see strong shipments until the end of the season. But the problem is Russia can ship more than it's shipping now because of uh, infrastructure bottlenecks, first of all. Because of the war, you know, it's hard to deliver grain to terminal because you have those uh, rail cars busy with, uh, uh, with uh, other things. Uh, so we expect to see 44.5 million tons. Uh, USDA says 45 million tons. That's a strong uh, pace, but it's more or less, we've been around this number for many months. Uh, but it's important to understand, despite huge supplies, despite a not so good outlook for the next crop, Russia can ship more physically because of that uh, bottleneck. Also, it's very interesting that you mentioned that unofficial price floor. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it looks like it does exist because on every at every uh, international tender with public uh, prices, we see that Russia is not Russian exports are not offering lower than 275. Uh, dollars per ton, and that's quite interesting because, in fact, in fact, it implies that in some cases Russia can compete with other suppliers. And with just a recent week, we saw uh, outstanding sales that it is available. Outstanding sales of Russian wheat are going down. So yeah. I won't be surprised that sooner or later, either they have will get rid of that floor, or yeah. the price will go up and Russian wheat will become uh, competitive again. Or, in fact, Russian exports would be low because of this flaw. Uh, exporters have huge margins at the moment, just great margins, but they can sell more because of that flaw. And that's kind of a new factor, which probably is not priced in if we're talking about their current season. If we talk about next few months, I think Green Deal, uh, Kremlin decision about its own experts, about Ukrainian experts is another factor to watch out. And as I said, Turkish elections are very important. But if we talk about the whole new season, uh, I think, uh, and I said about that already, the biggest takeaway is that Russia will still have a lot of uh, wheat, likely to have a lot of wheat to export despite a substantially smaller crop. Uh, that's one point, but same point, all the risks we talked about, Black Sea risk, Russia supplies risk, I won't be surprised that Russia again will try to hint that it somehow could limit its own wheat experts or grain experts, as we saw just some verbal interventions in the recent months. This is quite likely to happen in the next few months and in the new season as well, despite Russia will still have a lot of supplies to ship. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, great, thanks so much. Great, Aaron, thanks so much. Um, and thanks everyone. This was really uh, informative. We got a lot uh, a lot of time left before these crops get harvested. I'm sure we're gonna have a lot to talk about over the next few months. Uh, we hope to get into a discussion soon on rice uh, as well. Uh, so uh, check your calendars and everything, but I just wanted to thank all of you. This has been very, very informative, um, a great job. Um, and thanks in particular to the production uh, team here at IFCRI, uh, Joanna, uh, John, and uh, Michael. Uh, as usual, you guys have uh, kept this thing running smoothly. And uh, this will be posted uh, and, and up soon. So you'll be able to watch it at home uh, when you get home. <laughs> in any event, thanks so much. And we'll, uh, we'll conclude. <laughs>